Hello, hello, and welcome again to a Beatles show that we call Things We Said Today. This is a talk show in which we talk about anything that has to do with the Beatles, any part of their history, their music, you name it, the past, present, any part of their careers we cover here on this show. I'm Ken Michaels. I'm one of the co-hosts of the program, and some of you might know me from my other Beatles show, which is called Every Little Thing. And I'm being joined by my three other co-hosts of the show, my regular co-hosts, beginning with the man who writes for Beatles Examiner, that being Steve Marinucci. Hi, Steve. Hi, Ken. Hello, everyone. And also we have one of the writers for Beatle Fan Magazine, that being Al Sussman. Hi, Ken. Hello there, everybody. And actually, we do have another writer for Beatle Fan, but he also is a music critic and musicologist, and that being Alan Cozen. Hi, Hello, Alan. Everyone. Hello, everyone. Hello, Ken. We have uh, a very interesting topic indeed for the show this time out, and it has to do with the Beatles and whether or not we think that while they were together, they made any mistakes and uh, this was an idea that I came up with. I hope I'm not going to regret coming up with that uh, particular topic. <laughs> because uh, when I first brought up this idea uh, last week, um, Steve already had a book written on this particular uh, theme. <laughs> so um, I don't know if, if we're going to be able to cover it all in one hour here on the show. So let's get to our main topic of conversation here, and that is to talk about the Beatles' mistakes, if there are any. <laughs> and apparently, <laughs> between the rest of you, and I just have a few here, um, you know, in many ways, I've always kind of viewed the Beatles as being as close to perfect a band as, as you can have. And I, I've said on a number of occasions that certainly where their catalog is concerned, what they recorded as a group is uh, as solid a, a catalog as you can ever have. I've never felt that the Beatles ever gave us a bad song. Everything in the Beatles catalog has gone from good to great. Of course, that is debatable, uh, depending on who you want to talk to about this particular subject. But as far as mistakes, I want to clarify something right here. We're only talking about the time when the Beatles were together. We're not talking about um, the time before Ringo joined. So anything concerning the way the Beatles handled Pete Best, for example, that wouldn't that wouldn't fit this category or for that matter, anything that followed the Beatle breakup. So we're not going to get into the Beatles should have released this concert or these recordings. It's only about the time when the Beatles were together as a foursome. And we're talking mainly creative and business decisions. So, who would like to start? Actually, Steve seems to have quite a lot. <laughs> and you know which Does one I'm like going to go with? And you know which one I'm going to say first. You know it. Go ahead. So go I, ahead. So I will, I will say it. Magical Mystery Tour should not have happened. Um, I think I think and Ken and I had a had a major discussion. I think you guys remember when mm -hmm. when the re reissue came out. Um, I mean, they did everything they could to pump up the hit to make that you know to pump up the history and to to put a new spin on it. But really, looking back at it, it really you know it really didn't do any good as far as I was concerned. So I think they could have come up with something, a better project. I think, I mean, it was it was basically a vanity project. And granted, they were kind of, 
you know, in limbo because of Brian's passing and they were looking for, you know, they didn't really have any direction, but that really was not something they should have done. My thinking. Hmm. Your, your, re- your reaction, guys? I partly agree. I mean, uh, there, there was a certain amount of of uh, hubris involved. Um, you know, the the idea that you know we are the Beatles and we can do anything. And having just come off um, Sergeant Pepper, where they pretty much proved that they could do anything, and it was one of Paul's ideas, where you know, okay, let's be not the Beatles will be something else, and that worked. So this was his next thing. And but you know, the thing is that. Pepper was an album. They knew how to make albums. Um, this was making a film, and especially without an actual script. Um, and they were not incredible improvisers, or at least they were not incredible improvisers when there were mics and cameras on for you know producing something for public consumption. You know, mm-hmm. if you listen to some of you listen to some of John's tapes that he made in the privacy of his home, where he's just messing about. He's he's quite a funny improviser but somehow when you know the big red light was on uh he was a bit less so they did good at the press conferences i mean they were great oh yeah well that's true Those press conferences were funny to, to listen to yeah i don't know what the you know and and they obviously had to improvise there but for some reason in this in this situation it it didn't work out as well but those were just quips, you know. Um, it's it's mm-hmm. a little different than you know having to come up with a coherent film or something mm-hmm. that would, would be made okay. to look like a coherent film when cut together. But you know, I, I have to agree with Paul when he always points out when Magical Mystery Tour is criticized. Well, you did get I Am the Walrus, and um, if you cut as as I've done on various occasions when you know back when we used to make our own video mixtapes mm-hmm. just cut all the other stuff out and put the songs together and make a video album of the magical mystery tour songs it's not only pretty good but it's about half the time of the film so really the rest <laughs> is, is is just you know okay it's another half hour of of messing about and you know, and it's also it introduced um, Ivor Cutler to the world. I don't know if, if any of you guys subsequently became Ivor Cutler fans, mm. but, you know, he made a bunch of very funny albums for Virgin Records in the early mm-hmm. 1970s. And, um, you know, and I, I had not heard anything about him since Magical Mystery Tour and didn't realize that here was a guy with a weir- really quirky career, you know. Uh, and, you know, so when I saw the first of those albums, I thought, wow. That's that's the guy in Magical Mystery Tour, and and they were very funny, and he was very funny in in the film, and I think that also after hearing his records and and um, getting a sense of sort of his his kind of comedy, then going back to Magical Mystery Tour, um, it helps it a bit, I think. So yeah, I mean, I I have really mixed feelings about Magical Mystery Tour. It was one of the ones on my list, so I seem to be supporting it, but. <laughs> But hey, that's you know just for argument's sake. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it, does, it does have its good Al. points, you know. Go Alan's Al. on. Alan's on the right on the right trail there. Uh, yes, definitely. The music the music sequences are definitely um, uh, you know are, are definitely fine. But actually, even you know visually, even you know even the most recent iteration of the of the film just doesn't look good it wasn't filmed well there there just seemed to be very little in the way of preparation for this and you would have figured that having 
having worked with Richard Lester, they would have learned some things about filmmaking. And it just seemed that they uh, that they just decided, well, we're going to make a film. And they did absolutely no preparation for it. And also, obviously, a lot of the humor in there is very, very, very English humor. You know, the whole mm-hmm. bus tour motif is very much an mm-hmm. English thing uh, mm-hmm. and all. So, you know, obviously... You know, American audiences didn't really get a lot of that, uh, but it just seemed there was just a you know just a a, a a lack of preparation, you know, a lack of advance work, uh, and 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 also the fact that they rushed into it right after uh, right after Brian's death, you know, within about two weeks, if I recall correctly, that the, 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 the filming began. It just, the whole process just seemed rushed and there was no need for it because in those days, at that, at, at that point in time, it wasn't as if, as in the past, they had to rush something to, you know, uh, get it finished before they went out on tour. They weren't going out on tour. They could have taken all the time in the world they wanted to do this mm. and and do it and do it properly and it's just uh it was a and especially since it was a professional project of theirs it's it was maybe the first major blemish on their record okay well i can see uh your points and i agree with some <laughs> of them as i've said no why why is this funny uh, I think one of the things that I appreciate most about the Beatles was their change and the fact that you watch all of their films and none of them are identical to each other. They're all different in their own way. And I think when they approached this, they weren't thinking to themselves, I've got to make another A Hard Day's Night here or help. This was as free form as could be. Now, some people don't go for free form. But, you know, there is something to be said here about, and I want to raise this to, especially to you, Steve, and to you, Alan, because we've been talking about the Beatles' music in previous episodes. You're two guys who have been saying that you like a song like, What's the New Mary Jane? Okay? <laughs> Here's a song that's as freeform as could be. There's no real serious structure to it. It's really silly, lyrically. It doesn't really go anywhere. You either like it or you don't. Now, here are the Beatles making a film that's freeform, very spontaneous. It was meant to be that way. And you don't go for that kind of thing. I know, Alan, at least, you know, you're giving credit to the music sequences. But why is it that you can embrace the music when they're doing something like that, and then you won't embrace a film that's similar in that way? I don't dislike the film really all that much, but if we're talking, I'm I'm interpreting mistakes as also meaning something that didn't go over well at the time. You know, like the the U.S. actually never picked it up. I mean, you know, oh. Al, Al was mentioning about how U.S. audiences wouldn't have seen the whole bus tour thing, and that might be why a U.S. network didn't, you know, just couldn't see it. But in a way, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm thinking of it not that much as an artistic failure as a kind of commercial business failure in a way. Um, okay. You know, I, I don't, I can sit through Magical Mystery Tour any number of times. It's not you know, I, I don't think it's the most horrible thing. But if I were to argue simply for the sake of arguing, I would point out that um, what's the, what's 
the new Mary Jane is only like, you know, five minutes long and magical mystery tour is, is an hour. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I, I see your point. Yes. It's, it's a good point. But magical mystery tour has I am the walrus in it and fool on the hill and blue Jay right. way. And your mother should know and all these songs. And, and mm-hmm. I think they're they're They have a, a bit more merit than what's the new Mary Jane would. that's my own that's my own opinion here but um you know it's it's just um i appreciate the fact that the beatles went in a different direction but i just want to point out because i know in the case of you steve you you just look at this magical mystery tour as though no matter what there's nothing you can say about it it was a failure and that's how we should all look at it but i was just reading hunter davies new book called The Beatles Lyrics, and I just thought, since I had a slight feeling you were going to bring up the film here in this conversation, (laughs) I thought that I would bring up what he had to say about this. He writes, They should have worked harder on the script beforehand, plan all the scenes in advance, but the idea was to make it spontaneous, provide family amusement over the festive season. As a Beatle fan then and now, I enjoyed it. It was a modest, short film done on a budget. I couldn't see why the clever clogs critics were so beastly. And then he writes, the songs, such as I Am the Walrus, have survived the test of time. The way the songs were shot as self-contained little rock videos was ahead of its time. Over the decades, the film has acquired a bit of a cult following. It has improved with age, as we all do. Tra-la. So, that's how Hunter Davies feels about the movie. So, not everybody is in agreement with, with you, Steve. Well, let me. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to. I don't want to get into a heated debate, but I, I'm going to point. I'm going to point out what Alan said that you know, it was, this thing was a was a, really had a British angle to it, and he's British, and I can understand that he would that he would act absolutely like it. But you know, I think especially from an American point of view, it it just it just didn't make it. But okay, I know Steve, you have uh, a few more you'd like to get to. A couple of them had to do with concerts. One would be not recording Carnegie Hall. I think that was, I don't know what they were thinking there. That should have been recorded. And also, the other um, the other obvious thing would be not releasing full concerts. Not recording Carnegie Hall and not releasing full concerts from each year they toured during, you know, during that time. I mean, everybody, you know, there were a lot of people, the Rolling Stones, for example, that released live concerts and the Beatles never did. Um, and they could have made, you know, they could have done really well with a, you know, with live concerts from each year that they toured in America. And so, and Carnegie Hall would have been a great, you know, would have been a great show because it would have had great acoustics, you know, likely and everything. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, those were, those would have been, would have been nicer. Uh, I'm not even going to get into, you know, what they did with Hollywood Bowl. You know, that's not a big deal. But uh, I think the concert thing, I think everybody wishes that they had put out more, that they had put out concerts. Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, in the case of Carnegie Hall, uh, George Martin did indeed want to record it, but it was, Alan, help me out here. Was it the Musicians Union or? It was the union. Yeah, the yeah, union. That... And in fact, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, I think we've all, I've seen the contract. I think we, we may all have. Um, uh, the contract actually provides for them to record at Carnegie Hall, the contract between, um, there was a contract between EMI and Carnegie. Mm-hmm. And the fee was $300. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so it probably was within anybody's budget. <laughs> sure. Thanks. So. so, but yeah, the musicians union had a thing about, you know, here they are, they're foreign musicians, they're doing work here, oh. they shouldn't be recording. And uh, obviously they straightened that out by the time of the Hollywood Bowl, but um, but it's a shame. It's It was a historic concert mm. of which there is no documentation except for some still photos. Right. Right. And... And and no, but no tape has turned. I'm amazed that a tape hasn't turned up yet. I'm I'm I, I, I you know somebody somewhere I I well, bet has one. Well, remember that in those days, you know, it wasn't like it was. Uh, you know, even ten years later, when people would be bringing small tape recorders into concerts, there really was no. There really was no technology for that in 1964. But someone mm-hmm. did, in fact, actually. I was working for a while with Gino Francesconi, who's Carnegie Hall's archivist, and we were both Ah. doing everything we could to try and find a tape. Mm -hmm. And Gino got his hands on a bunch of pictures um, that show the Beatles on stage with the audience around them. Oh, right, with the one one girl. Yeah, there's one girl holding up a microphone. Ah. He went to Sid Bernstein and said, um, you know, assuming that the people who got the stage seats were somehow well-connected – do you possibly recognize this woman? Do you know who she is? And Bernstein couldn't remember, who, you know, anything about it. So, which is a pity. But, but he tried. You know, Gino Francesconi tried everything. I did too. I mean, I had a lot of um, hints about the fact, you know, the tape really does exist, and here's who has it. You know, uh, someone told me once that Teo Macero, the jazz producer, had it, and. Mm. Uh, Strangely enough, um, after I actually panned a reissue of a Teo Macero, Miles Davis recording, he invited me Mm. to the studio to watch them do, you know, CD transfers and and see what they did. And I thought, well, I'm going to go not because I'm particularly interested in in, I mean, I'm sort of interested in it, but I mainly wanted to ask Teo Macero if he actually had this tape and he didn't. Ah. Um, and then we were told that there was a stage hand named Dick Raven, great name, mm-hmm. um, who was still at Carnegie at the time, but was a little unapproachable unless you knew him, mm-hmm. um, that Dick Raven had it. So I found an usher who I had actually gone to school with um, mm-hmm. and persuaded her to sort of sidle up to him (laughs) and see if she could get the tape out of him. And she came up with a great plan having to do with a bicycle that needed repair. (laughs) And, um, and she asked him and he had no idea what she was talking about. So all of these things ended up as dead ends. I mean, it's, uh, you know, we, we tried everything. What a a great story. I interviewed Sid um, several years ago and, and I think I asked him about that, and he said no. So yeah. he said it wasn't recorded, as as I recall. Yeah. So, and as for you know your other point about there that there should have been a Beatles concert album for every mm-hmm. tour. I mean, it's mm-hmm. obvious why they didn't want you know an album out at that time because their performances just were not. You know, because of all of the mania and everything, they realized that their performances just were not up to the quality of their recordings. I mean, if, for instance, if you uh, the the recent uh, iTunes uh, package of Beach Boys live recordings, 
that, mm-hmm. that came out in December. If you listen right. to those and you listen to the original Beach Boys concert album that came out in the fall mm-hmm. of 64, you mm-hmm. can see how much surgery was done on the finished product. And, sure. and I think, and I have a, I have a hunch that, that the Beatles just, you know, and, and George Martin just would not have, you know, wanted to go through all that much work to put out a, you know, a representative live album. And, you know, oh, I, mean, I, I, you know? I, I disagree. I, just, I disagree with you because I think in those days it would have been necessary I mean, look it what they did. It wasn't necessary. I mean, they were the biggest act in the world. Look but what they, they did with Shea Stadium, though. Yeah, they, they over they overdubbed a good a mm-hmm. good portion of it. They obviously then you know, hey, it's one of the reasons why they stopped performing in the first place because they could see their performances. You know, their the the quality of their performance sliding downhill from. You know where it had been when they were playing, you know, the Star Club, to right. to where you know in the summer of '66 they, uh, you know, the the last professional, re, you know, recording of them, uh, which is the you know the Tokyo the two Tokyo shows, and they're mm-hmm. awful. And well, yeah, no, but I, 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 but I think no, the Shea thing was overdubbed because of technical problems, not because of the quality of the quality of the um of the concert as i recall well that's all um, the quality of the concert is is probably the prime reason why it's never come out you know mm-hmm. people keep wanting people people keep chanting that they want shea stadium shea stadium shea right. stadium and you know all you have to do is read the interviews with them over the years and how much they hated how how they sound how their you know their live recordings sound mm-hmm. now you can see why it's never come out right but, and i mean you know that but that said i mean i've i've recently listened for various reasons to both got live if you want at the stones live album oh. or semi live oh, album yeah. <laughs> um and the kinks live album um and hollywood bowl actually would have made a much better album than oh, both yeah. of those and they could have i mean it's also since steve mentioned it you know about putting out a live album maybe not for every year certainly not for 66 but since they did go in and dub shay and had a soundtrack that they produced for the TV show. Um, I wonder why they didn't put that out as an album. Mm. And there also is the Stones tracks from the um, was the, the movie they put out last year. Uh, Charlie the, is uh, my darling. Charlie is my darling. And those and I I I bought that from iTunes. Those are amazing. Those yeah. are incredible. Uh, yeah, I'm sure they, they there's been some. There's been some, you know, some upgrade on those tracks, but that's not to say that that couldn't have, you know, they couldn't have done that and they could still do it. But I mean, there's not that's not to say that they could have not played around with those tracks and made them made them commercial or made them, you know, a commercial product. Why? why, But why do that? Why do what was done to Got Live If You Wanted and the Live Kinks, which are not representative of what those two bands were like? as live performers at that moment in time the i mean god live if you want it is is it's it's is it's it's worthless as a document yeah, no, of I, what the I, stones I, were you know I, I, like live I, 
I agree. And so, and live kinks isn't great either. Right. I mean, it's just, it, you just figure that the B, the biggest band in the world, you know, they went to such, uh, EMI went to such lengths to put out stuff. I mean, you know, uh, look at what Capitol did with the, you know, the way they butchered the Beatles albums. And I mean, you would have thought somebody would have, would have come up with that idea, you know, uh, would have made that happen. It just seems like a, a, a possibility that, that they didn't do. I don't know. May, you might be right that, you know, the Beatles themselves didn't want it. But yeah, I, don't, it just, I, it just, I think that's, just, I, I think that's the primary reason because in but, 1977, when, you know, when the Hollywood Bowl album came out, that was at a point where they didn't have control over those recordings, you know, we've, the, we've heard, we've, we've heard, we've heard the complete Hollywood Bowl tapes because the, the bootleggers have had them. We've right. heard the un, the we've heard the complete uh are the unbridled uh shea tapes right because those have come out on bootleg right and they there's something that could have been done i think with both of those uh you know between the two and I, they wanted to put out hollywood bowl you remember i mean that was part of the that was part of the deal so i don't well, know no, I, it's, but, it's, but in the end in the end they vetoed it according to brown megs anyway i i asked him directly once and yeah. he said that um john in particular just hated the sound of them mm-hmm. i mean they 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 put together test pressings and sent them to them and they just rejected it outright at yeah. the time mm-hmm. so that was their okay. decision mm-hmm. okay well all right so there we go all right yeah, End well, of, with I the beatles pretty... with the beatles you're dealing with high standards you know mm-hmm. and um exactly you're dealing with with a group that cared a lot about the quality of what they put out so they didn't mm-hmm. want they wouldn't they didn't want to put anything that was substandard to them right so right. It's one thing how the fans feel, and there are fans that will eat up anything and find it all fascinating. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that the Beatles feel the same way. So okay, all right. And what else, Steve? Next, <laughs> am, I, am, I, am I taking over this discussion? No, right, no, no, a... no. It's good because again, we're bouncing off of your uh, your points. This one, this one's a little controversial. I've always after you know after a hard day's night when they got to help. You kind of looked at help for a couple of reasons. Number one, the story. Number two, the fact that it was in color. So here's my here's or here here I go, and this is probably going to get me some angry letters. But number one, doing help in color, period. And number two, maybe not do maybe doing help at all because it was such a, a drop uh, from in the script from the brilliance of a hard day's night. Hmm. You guys are uh, I... there's dead silence. There's dead silence now. Uh... Everybody's did he I really couldn't say disagree that? more. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't. I couldn't disagree more. But okay. you know, I think that that Help was a brilliant film. Mm-hmm. I grew up on Help before A Hard Day's Night. Actually, I saw it in the theaters, and it was breathtaking to see the Beatles in color. That was part of the reason why I loved it so much because everything I saw of them prior to that was in black and white. I think the mm-hmm. way the film was shot was so brilliant, just like what Richard Lester did in A Hard Day's Night. It's just mesmerizing to see the Beatles on film in color and just the cinematography, the way it was all done. Mm-hmm. Um, to see the Beatles skiing on the slopes during Ticket to Ride is my favorite moment of them on screen. Granted, the the script and the dialogue is not nearly as good as A Hard Day's Night, but it really is a very funny, entertaining film all the way through. And visually, I just find it to be stunning. And just like... What Hunter Davies said about Magical Mystery Tour, and you could say this about A Hard Day's Night, you can take each individual 
song sequence and make a video of, of each one, as MTV did mm-hmm. when they first started out. And they all work well as videos. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Beatles were naturally funny on screen with a script and, and certainly in A Hard Day's Night with John with a lot of ad-libs. But even still, even though the dialogue wasn't as witty and as sharp as A Hard Day's Night, there's still some very funny moments in terms of the script itself and the dialogue. Mm-hmm. And just um, visually, it is just a, a stunning uh, film for me to watch to this day. Mm-hmm. You could take each song, everything, the night before, you know, you've got to hide your love away. All that stuff, whether on a field, whether they're in their own room, that, you know, that, that room that they all shared, though they all went into sep- through separate mm-hmm. doors, all that stuff. I love that. Um, yeah. I thought it was brilliantly done. And and also the cast around them, just like with the Hard Day's Night, yeah. you know, um, they they were great. They they were such a key component to that film. So mm-hmm. no, I totally disagree with you, um, okay. Steve, on this. I know I know I... that the the world for the most part has in, in history. What people are saying now historically is that a Hard Day's Night was so much more superior to a, to um, help to help, but. Um, <laughs> It's it's still such a worthwhile film. I enjoy it just as much as A Hard Day's Night. I still do. But, you know, when it comes to lines in a film, nothing can top A Hard Day's Night. I always think of lines in A Hard Day's Night in my in my daily life. I, can, I still can't with, I still can't with help. I, <laughs> I could do the same thing for help and not as much as with A Hard Day's Night. But, you know, help is definitely a worthwhile film. Yeah. I I don't think it's that much of a of a drop off in quality. It may not be quite as good as a hard day's night, but there are still some very very clever sequences in there. And as far as color, I never have had any problem with the fact that the film was in color. And um, again, if you you know if, if you're that Steve, if you're that down on it, you've got you can basically again take the musical sequences and right. just lump them together and I, you know i'm sure you you know you probably don't have much of a problem with those i'm i'm not down on it as much nearly as much as magical history sure not at all oh. yeah, but I, and and i saw i mean unlike ken ken said he grew up in help i saw hard day's night the second day it was in the theater i mean i mm-hmm. saw it in the theater and you know girls were screaming and everything so right. that's when that's when i first saw it and um so Again, you know, having to having seen a hard day's night and watched a hard day's night. I, I mean, I can't even if I can't if I was to count how many times I'd seen hard day's night versus help. Hard day's night would be huge. The the, the difference is in, uh, astounding. Um, so mm. you know, I, Alan, I can see why. I can, yeah, I can see why um, you you feel that way, and and a lot of people feel that way. I mean. Hard Day's Night is, you know, first of all, they are still fresh and new and lean. Um, And also, even though it's fictionalized and scripted, it's kind of the Beatles playing the Beatles. In Help, Mm -hmm. they're already in what John is later calling his Fat Elvis period. Um, They're getting high all the time. They're a little Mm -hmm. less into it. They're a little less excited about making this movie than they were about their first movie. And it's fantasy Beatles. It's weird fantasy Beatles. You know, it's it's them doing things that it's – but, you know, it's also – 
supposed to be a little bit of a parody of James Bond, who was, you know, really mm. hot at the time. Wow. And, um, you know, so it, it, it tried to do something else. And, and, and they couldn't have done Hard Day's Night Volume 2. I mean, it, it, they had to do something else. And this is what they did. And I, I think it was an OK choice. I, I, I like Hard Day's Night a lot, a, a lot more. Well, a bit more than Help. But I like Help, too. Uh, since we're talking about films, though, um, since one of my mistake things actually only takes about one sentence, maybe I should interject it in here. Sure. I think that they should have voiced Yellow Submarine. And I think that if they had paid mm. attention. Very to good. What, yeah. <laughs> I think if they had paid attention to what was going on earlier in the process instead of just poo pooing it until they finally went and saw what was being done and said, wow, this is cool, maybe they would have voiced it. Um, mm. But, you know, I think they were taken by surprise um, by what they saw and liked it and decided to do that live bit at the end. But it would have, I think, been much better if they had done the voicing. Funny thing is, when, when when Paul was just recently on with Jimmy Fallon, mm-hmm. he was talking about how people tend to do uh, tend to do a this uh, you know Liverpool this fake Liverpool accent with uh, the uh, you know with the their, their voices very kind of nasally and down and uh, uh, it's and. It's that that's exactly where that that type of accent comes from. Those the voices that were done for uh, for Yellow Submarine, mm-hmm. you know, with that. They have only themselves to blame. Exactly. Right. Right. Exactly. That's a great that's a great point. Alan. I, I'm... Yeah, I, I'd actually never thought about that. So that's I think we're all in agreement on that one. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. OK, next. OK, next. Uh, um... <laughs> next. <laughs> So, Steve, any more? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the obvious one that every that uh, I think you guys would probably agree with is not making the American and the British albums different. But uh, And I actually did not put that on the list, but that's something that occurred to me while I was sitting here. But in kind of in, in uh, along with that, I was thinking about Sgt. Pepper and the fact that they recorded Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields during those sessions and didn't put it on Pepper. And they also recorded it. It's, it's only a Northern song, but I think there's, there's been, uh, there's been, I've seen things where they had considered putting Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields on Pepper. And I'm kind of wishing they had kind of, kind of, I don't think uh, it's only a Northern song would have fit as well, but Strawberry Fields and Pepper, I think would have been great on there. You know, I, I'm I'm a little bit tired of of these criticisms that are done in hindsight. Mm. Sergeant Pepper did pretty good for itself, I think, just the way it mm-hmm. was. And I know that we've heard George Martin say it a million times. The biggest mistake he ever made was not putting Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields on Sergeant Pepper. Sergeant Pepper was great just by itself. I mean, it had enough music to begin with. You would have had to have eliminated some of the songs on Sergeant Pepper to put those other two songs on there. And first no, of all, would. only another... Oh, no, George no, Martin it was, it was really, only 30, I think, 35 minutes. Uh, it was still like, the in terms of how many numbers of songs, it was still a full album to itself without those two songs on there. Mm-hmm. I mean, we grew up on this just the way it was, and none of us complained about it. No, and it's and, fine now to look... <laughs> and, quite, <laughs> you know, and quite the contrary, that single was the perfect appetizer 
for Sergeant Pepper, plus the fact that by February of 67, most, you know, hardcore Beatles fans were absolutely starving for a new release. I mean, mm-hmm. I, th- I, I had gotten to the point where when I heard kind of a drag by the Buckinghams and Western Union by the five Americans, the first time I heard them on the radio, I thought it was the Beatles. That's how mm-hmm. that's how much I was hungering for any new Beatles release, because remember that we hadn't had we hadn't had anything since the beginning of August when Revolver and the single of Yellow Submarine and Eleanor Rigby came out, plus there were all of those breakout, uh, breakup rumors that were rampant in the fall of 66. So by February of 67, we were absolutely ravenous for any kind of new Beatles music. And that single, which is you know probably one of the three or four best singles that they ever released. I'd hate to have to pick one, but it's certainly one of them. And it was the perfect, the perfect appetizer for Sgt. Pepper and made, in fact, the wait for the, for the new album all the more torturous. Mm. Where would you put those two songs on Pepper mm. in the sequence? That time. Uh, you know, I—I I mean, I uh, obviously, I didn't really. Th- I mean, somewhere probably on the first side, mm-hmm. probably. Um, but it—it it just seemed like because of the, you know, the way they were, and it, I think they would have—they would have been really good in there. I don't know. But that—I uh, mean, I've heard—I've—I've I've heard before that they had thought about that, and and they and I, and I think George Martin rejected it. So. They well, were pretty a couple well on the points. Magical Mystery Tour album. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. It's true. That's true. That's true. A couple of points I want to bring up here. First of all, about Only a Northern Song. George mm-hmm. Harrison did submit that for Sgt. Pepper, and George right. Martin turned it down. And he said, you know, you could do better than this. So it's not like that song wasn't offered to begin with. And mm-hmm. second of all, the Beatles prided themselves with from their album so that you weren't buying the same song twice. So you can apply this logic to every single Beatles album that had a single simultaneously that wasn't on their albums. Mm-hmm. You could say, well, Be- Beatles for Sale would have been so much better if I Feel Fine and She's a Woman was on there. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> you can mm-hmm. you can use that with every single, oh, Rubber Soul would have been better with We Can Work It Out in Day Tripper. Mm-hmm. You know, so, but the singles were kept separate and they thought of them as separate entities. And, um, well, maybe there is some truth that the Beatles themselves thought about Sergeant um, Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane, maybe for the album, but they worked fine as singles by themselves. And, um, you know, for all these years that Sergeant Pepper has been championed as the greatest album of all time, that's without Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane. Mm -hmm. So the world has not suffered by not having those two songs on Sgt. Right, Pepper. Right. Not at all. Plus the fact that, again, it would have, if, if they had been included on the album, it would have been a 10-month span between Revolver and Sgt. Pepper. And that was pretty much unheard of in that era. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the groups didn't take, you know, it wasn't like it is now where a major act will go five years between albums. You know, it just didn't happen in those days. Mm-hmm. Next. Um, the last, right. this, is, this is the last one. The last one. Okay. The last one was, 
when they originally conceived Let It Be, they originally wanted to do a TV special and a live show. And I'm and I was thinking, what if they had gone that way? What if they had gone with the TV special and the live and the you know the the live gig? Um, that would I think that would have been that would have been very interesting. That would have been and it would have you know we, obviously we wouldn't have had Let It Be the movie. We wouldn't have had all the you know the you know what we saw on the screen. But it would have. I think it would have been. You know, I don't know. It might have been a little more positive if we'd have seen the the TV special and the live show that they had originally planned. I don't know if that's necessarily a mistake. That is what they had considered early on, and it would have been interesting if they had done if they had gone that route. Well, we don't know because we didn't do it. So you know, you can't really judge whether that was a mistake or not. I know that most of us are quite happy with the fact that they did the Apple Rooftop concert, and that's now so historic. So, right. um, you know. How do you say that's a mistake? Well, so. I mean, well, number one, let it be. Uh, obviously, let it be. I mean, it does kind of reflect on the fact that let it be is not available now. You know, it had it been a TV special and, or and a live show, you know, it probably would be available now. There probably wouldn't be the the issues with the you know within the Beatles themselves. I don't know, Alan. You were going to say something. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, if they had done what they had planned to do, there would have been an equally historic um, roundhouse concert or a mm. concert in the yeah. – what did John want to do it in the middle of the Sahara with the sun coming up? And <laughs> right. the, you know, I mean, <laughs> whatever they did would have been historic because it would have been a one-off concert that would have been preserved um, as the finale of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I guess it's one of those parallel universe questions. Um, what mm-hmm. they did is historical and – you know what what they would have done is historical if they had, you know unless they had just let it drop so it's good that they didn't do that because there was so much you know contention that they could well right. have just said you know hell with this you know but, but um, the, i mean they pretty much what they pretty much ended up doing was pretty much because they were all pretty you know they were at the end of their ropes and they said let's just get it done you know let's just do yeah. it and that's what they did but it's just too bad that they couldn't have come up with a solution on a more you know, a positive footing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I have let it be on my list of things that are mistakes, but I don't didn't quite I, I couldn't quite focus on what exactly it was about. Let it be. That was a mistake. Um It just, you know, it started off with the best of intentions and um you know, just ended up being something else. You know, one of the reasons the film hasn't come out, I gather, is that Paul is kind of unhappy watching it, you know, because it shows the the, the friction between them. And even though everybody knows that the friction be- between them was there, pretty much the same way everybody knows that this is the 50th anniversary, right. um, you know, 51st now, there, you know, he, he wants history to be the way he wants it to be and he's just not happy with with what that film shows i believe however you know all of us have probably listened to all of the let it be outtakes um Uh audio at least Uh um Mm -hmm. and assuming Mm. there is film for a lot of that stuff i really believe that you could cut an alternate let it be that would actually be a much happier film and um, they may do that. Um, I was talking to one of the Apple, Jonathan Clyde, I believe, who um, you know couldn't tell me anything because they're not allowed to talk to the press and as you know whatever. Um, 
But so I just mentioned to him, I said, you know, if you put out Let It Be, what you should do is put out the original film, but also cut together a new version of the film that shows the other side of those sessions because it was a lot of funny stuff mm -hmm. and a lot of, you know, right. sure. that, that really could be a very up Let It Be film. And the sort of look on his face led me to believe that actually they had already done that. You know? ah. So um, I, I wish they would actually put that out, but I guess that we're not talking about post Beatles not putting out stuff as mistakes. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, maybe, um, you know, giving up to the extent that they weren't involved in what the final cut was. And apparently nobody was happy with it. John felt that it was all a very, you know, not enough John and Yoko. Well, I don't know why he says that, but said it, but because um, there is plenty of them, even waltzing to I Me Mine. Mm -hmm. um, and Paul doesn't like it for the reasons he doesn't like it. I'm sure George didn't like it. You know, nobody liked it, but no one seemed to have actually wanted to get involved enough to guide it uh, to be sort of a, a, a better representation of those sessions. Maybe that's mm. what the mistake was. <laughs> the real big so mistake, Paul, of course, is that, that the all, all all four of them really should have been on Life with the Lions. Don't you agree? Oh, absolutely. yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Had to stick that in there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna continue now with um, the few mistakes that I wrote down, and this wasn't very easy for me because, in many ways, I do kind of view the Beatles as close to perfect as you can get. But one thing that I have lightly touched upon in a previous show here is that um, towards the end of the Beatles, when George Harrison was really flourishing as a songwriter, John and Paul didn't allow more of his songs to be on their music, notably Let It Be. Mm -hmm. I mean, you take a look at Abbey Road and two shining moments, although the whole album is brilliant, are something and Here Comes the Sun. But by the time that they were doing the Let It Be sessions, the Get Back Let It Be sessions, they were rehearsing a ton of stuff that ended up on All Things Must Pass. Now, I would not want to change history where All Things Must Pass is concerned because that is such a masterpiece. And in many ways, I wouldn't change a thing about All Things Must Pass. I love all the songs. I love the way it was produced. I'm not one of these anti-Phil Spector people. I loved it exactly the way that it came out. But when the band is rehearsing a song like All Things Must Pass or Wawa or Beware of Darkness or Hear Me, Lord, um, or Isn't It a Pity? You know, all these songs that are such high quality, let it down. Um, how can those songs be ignored? And... When you think about the Let It Be album, as much as I love I Me Mine and For You Blue, the material to me on All Things Must Pass was stronger. And the only reason why I Me Mine was even done was because they wanted to have something to represent that song since, as you were just saying, mm -hmm. Alan, John and Yoko were, were waltzing to it while the band was playing it. But, um, you know, the, John and Paul did not give George more time when he deserved it towards mm -hmm. the end. I'm not going to talk about the early years because George wasn't that productive. He wasn't prolific as a songwriter then. And John and Paul were just banging out so many great songs. So, but towards the end, when he was really, you know, becoming such a great songwriter, we're talking, you know, 68, 69, how can you not acknowledge that? Mm -hmm. You know, so to me, you know, the world's perception of the four of them uh, comes from what they did as a band first. 
And since George always got less time than John and Paul, you know, that carries over to the public's perception of each of the four of them. And, you know, imagine, I mean, this, you can't change history, how different the whole world would look at the Beatles if from the very beginning, the amount of songs between John, Paul and George on their albums were more equal. But towards the end, when they were together, I think George deserved a few more songs per album. So I don't know how you guys feel about that, but I no, definitely no, feel that way. No question. I agree. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, there was discussion okay. early on between John and Paul about whether George should be included in the songwriting collaboration. It, they could have all those songs could have been Lennon, McCartney, Harrison, and they decided mm. against it. Mm. So okay, that was one of my mistakes. There, um, another one has to do with someone named Alan Klein. Mm-hmm. And uh, just the fact that he was brought in and wanted him to be their business manager and then got George and Ringo to side with him, even though he knew that Paul wanted Lee Eastman as as a manager. Um, And by no means in any way will I ever say that the Beatle breakup itself was a mistake. But by allowing Alan Klein to enter the picture, um, it really caused a wedge between John and Paul in particular. And so even though from what I have heard all these years, Mick Jess to go with Alan Klein, mm-hmm. he didn't take his advice. So John must have known at that time that that would have caused a huge problem. I thought and Jagger so, had advised him to go with Klein. I thought Jagger, it was Jagger recommended Klein to yeah. him, I thought. Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought it was the other way around. No, hmm. no, it was, uh, it was, uh, I, I think, yeah, that he he definitely had recommended Klein to to John. I think I think later Jagger was down on Klein. Yeah, not, yeah, absolutely. Not, not not at the beginning, no. Okay, but I think that was uh, you know certainly one of the biggest reasons why they did break up. And mm-hmm. to me, the breakup was inevitable. It would have happened anyway. The question is, would it have happened that quickly, or could they have continued for a year or two more? But I think oh. that they would have eventually broken up. But I think uh, bringing Alan Klein into the fold was one of the biggest reasons why they did. But, so, you know, from, from the perspective of the other three, um, if you're in a partnership with three other people and one of them wants to make his father-in-law and brother-in-law your manager, uh, no matter how close friend you are and the friendships were fraying by this point mm-hmm. um I, I can see how the other three felt that that wouldn't have been the right move you know and feeling that you know having had all this propaganda from from the stones about how much money he got the stones from from deca you know and he was proven at doing this whereas lee eastman although he was a showbiz lawyer it wasn't the kind of showbiz the beatles did mm. um so I, I i think i can see their point of view and uh meaning john john george and ringo um, so I'm not, I'm not sure it was Alan Klein so much as Paul insisting on his in-laws. Now, you know, with the wisdom of hindsight, Lee Eastman's advice has made Paul an extremely rich man, and he could have done that for all four of them. Uh-huh. But, Absolutely. Uh, 
<laughs> but from the from at the time, you can see why they were looking a little suspiciously. Like, it's your father-in-law, man. Like, what happens if something goes wrong with that relationship? We're all going to be hostage to anything, you know, that could happen maritally. And, you know, I, I don't know. It's it was just an odd thing all around. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I think people tend to forget the fact that they were all still in their 20s at that point. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Alan, you were in bands in your 20s, right? Mm-hmm. If I recall. And it's kind of, <laughs> it seems that for, you know, for various and sundry reasons, whether it's money, whether it's women, whether it's musical differences, whether it's philosophical differences, guys that are in bands in their 20s, and maybe even particularly more so in that era, tended to be, pardon the expression, dicks to each other. <laughs> and <laughs> and even you know, even as multi-talented a group as the Beatles, as as multi you know, mega successful as they were, they were still guys in their twenties and not terribly worldly and sophisticated guys in their twenties. Mm. And I think that's I think that's also part of the reason for uh, for the way that George's musical output was kind of relegated because there was, you know, uh, you know, it was, you know, pure ego on the part of uh, certainly in the part of Paul. And with John, I think it may have been ego fueled by uh, chemicals and maybe other things. Who knows? But mm. uh, but that's that seems that's part of you know part and parcel of what drove them apart was the fact that they they just were you know from really from the you know the white album onward they just were terrible to each other you know the interpersonal relationships were absolutely abominable and that you know that's for me that's one of the major mistakes but then that's a part of a series of them, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so. All right. Uh, Steve, you want to chime in on this? Well, I've already said everything that I'm going to say. So as far as the, but yeah, I mean, they, you know, they, we know that they just didn't get along. Uh, there was a lot of, you know, bad feeling at the end. Even Ringo got in, you know, mm-hmm. happy go lucky Ringo got into it a little bit. So, I mean, if that's the case, you know, it uh, that's not you know that shows how how bad things were going down at the end. But so there's really not much okay. to say about. That. My last uh, on the list here of mistakes is actually I guess you you might consider this a petty one because um, for all the hit records that the Beatles had, they could have had twice as many. And um, you know, 1964 was the year here in America where they exploded and there were so many hits right and left and. You know, the thing is, as the years went on, the singles thinned, thinned out to the point where 1968, you had let, um, you had uh, Lady Madonna and Hey Jude. And that was it. Think about all the singles they could have released from albums like Sgt. Pepper or the White Album. The White Album never had a single when it came out. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many songs that could have been hits instantly. I mean, they had so many to begin with. And maybe I'm being greedy here. Mm-hmm. But um, there's so many songs that are that are album cuts 
Every time I hear, you're going to lose that girl, I think to myself, why wasn't that ever a single in 1965? You can apply that to so many songs that they had on their albums. And despite the fact that they are the number one group of all time in terms of hits, they could have easily have had so many more. So, and I'm also thinking in terms of the American market. I'm not thinking about the UK releases mm -hmm. because that was all, you know, that was controlled by the Beatles themselves. So, I don't know how you guys feel about it, but... Well, I think we had all those songs because we had the albums. So, it would have been, you know, they, they prided themselves on this attempt to not sell you the same song twice. Mm -hmm. I mean, if if they had only you know, been visionary enough to see the CD and download age where they're selling us the same thing every two weeks um, <laughs> would be something different. But, True. you know, I mean, I, I think they, I think they, I don't know. I, I could see if you were saying, you know, that they should have made more singles because they were so prolific, but to take more singles off albums that we already had, I, I don't know if I, if I see the necessity of that really. Well, certainly in America, they released songs that were singles here that were not in the UK. Right. So I'm thinking in terms of also capital. I mean, if you had Nowhere Man as a single here, which was never a single in the UK, right. or Eight Days a Week or, or one of those songs, you could have had plenty more. Yeah. It really only became uniform from like uh, 67 on. Right. So, but they didn't. They didn't like it. You know, the Beatles didn't like that Capitol mm, was doing yeah. that. And right. and also in the case of some of those songs, like Eight Days a Week, for instance, I think we got them as singles because Capitol had withheld them from the albums exactly. that had been out. Written. Exactly. Exactly. So, and the other the other thing the other thing too is that is that AM stations were playing everything. They weren't they weren't holding at least on the uh, you know when I lived on the East Coast and. Yeah, and you guys would know. I mean, um, WBZ, WABC, they were playing everything. They weren't. They weren't just playing singles. Plus, uh, you know, I don't know what what the point of of actually putting out singles. Yeah. Yes. And plus, <laughs> in, you know, in that in that era, the concept mm -hmm. of releasing singles from albums really had not begun. I mean, the 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 concept of releasing two, three, four singles from an album really didn't begin. Uh, it began. It began with Clive Davis at Columbia, with uh, the second Blood, Sweat, and Tears album, and with Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water. And certainly, in the in the case of the Beatles, they didn't need to release a second or third single from an album because uh, you know they were so massively successful that they that there was just no need for it plus as i said there just it, in those days it, at that point in time it just was not done because the yeah. you know the overall attitude toward albums had previously been you know that there would just be an a, a, you know a single or two already loaded onto the album and yep. you know yeah, and you got the single first and then the album rather than it. the Exactly. Yeah. And then by 1968, the year you mentioned, um, particularly FM radio had become kind of a big force. And that, I think, changed not everybody's attitude, but um, the attitude of the people who were the Beatles audience, I think, at the time, um, which was that FM was considered kind of hip and AM was considered something that you no longer listened to. You left it to your little brother and sister to yeah. listen to. Um, 
And so you would have, you know, the White Album would come out and radio stations would play a whole side of the album uninterrupted, you know. Right. And um and I think that I think that the the feeling about singles changed a bit. You know, singles were considered kind of less important. You know, we think of them now as chart things. You know, we look back at the Beatles history and and say, as I, I guess you're saying, you know, they had 20 number ones. They could have had 40. Mm-hmm. But at the time, you know, it was, uh, OK, we, we don't really you don't really care about singles anymore unless they're not on the album, you know, or unless they're out so far before the album is that you kind of need to get it. I mean, you know, at the time I got the let it be single partly because, you know, my name look up number was on the back and wasn't on anything, but I never bothered with the long and winding road single. Cause I already had the album. Why, why would I need mm-hmm. that? And, and for you blue mm-hmm. on a single, you know? So it's interesting. But yet point, at the though. same time, at the same time, those singles went to number one. Mm-hmm. So Top sure. 40 Radio was still doing extremely well by oh, then, the late 60s and, sure. and throughout the 70s, too. So yeah. I'm just being I'm being greedy here. That's all. I just think that the Beatles could have had many more. You, you take a look at 1964 and all the singles that were released in America that weren't UK singles. You know, you can take a look at um, And I Love Her, Back With If I Fell, I'll Cry Instead, those those singles. There were a lot of singles that came out here. The Beatles probably were oblivious to it all. And, you know, there could have been more of that. That's all. But I think, well, I think they, I think they saw that because of the fact that, for instance, in the case of the the songs from A Hard Day's Night, Capital did release two, three, four singles. Um, Mm. It was, they, in a sense, kind of clogged up the charts and kind of negated each other in effect. Mm. So... Uh, so I think that may be that may be part of it, but I think I think overall it's just the fact that in those days uh, they just it, it just wasn't done to release second and third singles from an album. All right, it's just that whenever I hear something like, especially when it when it concerned the movie Help, those songs that were in the movie, any one of them could have been hits. Oh sure. So well, well it's kind know, of like what Steve was saying that you know that. You know, the radio top forty radio was playing every single track from every single Beatles album, and you know, so they so it was almost as if they were all singles. Okay. You know, in in terms of you know how you know in terms of how the audience was was receiving them. We're all uh, making a, a good point here, and um, I'm still as someone who's a chart buff. <laughs> And I love the fact that the Beatles broke all records and uh, certainly continue to have all the success they did in their solo careers. I wanted more success. So um, how about you, Al? What were, well, what were the mistakes that you listed? Well, actually, we've covered some of them because I, the mistakes that uh, that I came up with basically come almost consecutively over a period of two years, beginning – beginning really in the days after August 27th, 1967. Because, I mean, the, the, the mere fact that the Beatles didn't even turn up for Brian Epstein's memorial service was, a, was I think, a mistake. You know, the excuse was given that they didn't want to uh, cause, uh, you know, Beatlemania-type scenes in the streets. You know, that could have been 
that could have been alleviated. Uh, but I, I think it was, I think it was a, a bad thing that they didn't even turn up for the man's memorial service. And then, uh, you know, and then to go into Magical Mystery Tour with as little preparation as we, you know, discussed earlier. And then to set up Apple as amateurishly as it was set up. And then uh, including the various divisions, including the Apple, you know, the Apple shop, which was run, you know, very amateurishly uh, and, and indeed had to be closed shortly after it actually opened. And then the deterioration in, in relations within the group over, you know, musical differences and philosophical differences and business differences and all the rest of it uh, that we just that we just went into. Uh, I think all of that, the last basically the last two years of their time as a group, much of it was laden with mistakes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In fact, actually, Al's Al's point there was the very last thing on my list that hadn't already been discussed. So what's that? Thanks, Al. <laughs> well, that that whole well, one of them, um, the the amateur setting up of Apple, um, yeah. the fact that they, you know, it was it was again hubris, like with Magical Mystery Tour. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, okay, and now we can we can be a business, you know, and with the the best intentions, um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna be open to people who want to do creative projects without quite thinking that that meant mm -hmm. that every single, you know, little kid and huckster in the world was going to be at their doorstep asking yeah. for money. You know, the, the Apple, I think, you know, as a whole, it did some great stuff. The Apple label, mm -hmm. um, you look at the Apple label discography, it is an incredible discography. Note for, for note. Like a short time. Yeah. But, you know, the things like, uh, you know, I guess we won't get into their electronics division. No, please. Um, but, um, <laughs> you know, and some of their other stuff, you mentioned the, the shop, you know, right. that that was a, so. But, yeah, my your 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 point was basically the only thing I had left on my list that we hadn't somehow discussed. So, yeah. Um, and again, yeah, I, think, I think we forget that, again, these were guys who were in there. Again, these are guys who were still in their 20s and mm -hmm. were not very worldly and not very sophisticated and really had no knowledge of business. And um, just, you know, either either never got the right advice or maybe no advice at all. Mm -hmm. Well, know? they weren't willing to take advice. Well, that too. They were... that too. Exactly. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. And as Ringo said, they were musicians, not businessmen. Exactly. <laughs> so, and that showed. And it is kind of fascinating that, that, like you said, Alan, the music on the Apple label was really impressive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's so varied. And um, it really was, as I said before, it's more an extension of themselves. You know, the fact that they just embraced all different types of genres of music and even had spoken word in there, uh, you know, they they mixed everything on Apple Records. And, okay. um, of course, whether or not the records turn out to be successful is another story to itself. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, to suddenly start a business when you're not really businessmen, and they brought a lot of friends along, probably because these were people they could trust, even though they may not know much about business, mm -hmm. you know, that also contributed too. But, uh, yeah. yeah, these are all great right. points that we've all raised here and then even and, though it's uh, even though it's after the fact also 
uh, Apple Apple Records could have been even more uh, a longer lasting label and uh, perhaps even greater quality, but they you know they lost interest in it in the exactly. early in the early seventies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, which is a shame. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know that's why it's that a... that last single has you know this guitar can't keep from qu- crying has that shoot up Apple as its uh, <laughs> as its label. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's really a fascinating part of their history to to go into um, Apple Records because they were all involved in their own way with other artists, and uh, certainly in the case of George. I think a lot of people would be surprised at how involved George Harrison was with Very, many of the different artists yes. on Apple Records. But, yeah. you know, you take a look at uh, as a musician or as a producer, how many people he tried to help. Uh-huh. And um, they all did in various degrees. But, um, you know, it's a fascinating part of their of their story, which we should get into in a future show. Yes, definitely. Yes. So that puts the show to a close. Thanks so much for tuning in. On behalf of Steve Marinucci, Alan Cozen, and Al Sussman, I'm Ken Michaels, thanking all of you for listening to Things We Said Today, and we'll see you next time. Thanks.